2: Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Editor-at-Large of Recode. You may know me as someone who could probably be a very good neurosurgeon. I'm used to getting into people's heads, but in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Dr. Lloyd Miner, the Dean of the Stanford University School of Medicine. He's also the author of a new book called Discovering Precision Health, Predict, Prevent, and Cure to Advance Health and Well-Being, which comes out March 20th. We'll talk about the big public health issue that's on everyone's mind right now, which is the coronavirus outbreak, as well as how tech is changing the study and practice of healthcare. Dr. Miner, welcome to Rico Decode.
3: Thanks. It's great to be here, Carl. So
2: I'm going to start, uh, I'm going to go into your background and stuff like that, but let's talk about right now the coronavirus. Anyone who has any... Ability to talk about it intelligently. We love to talk about. It. We're having tomorrow we're having Ron Klein who was the Ebola czar yep. under the uh, Obama administration. Talk a little bit about where you think we are and how Stanford is handling this, because I think every probably every major medical center is discussing this at length.
3: I think this is a serious public health concern, but it's not a cause for panic. Mm -hmm. Specifically to your question about Stanford, we're prepared. Uh, None of us knows the extent of the spread, Mm -hmm. but we just opened two wonderful new inpatient facilities a Children's Hospital. We opened about two years ago a new adult hospital that we opened just this past November. They're equipped with private rooms, rooms that are ready to take care of patients with infectious diseases. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our staff are trained. We have supplies of personal protective equipment. So, we've been in preparation for this or an event like uh, Mm -hmm. COVID-19 since before the current uh, problem with this virus began. So,
2: what, how, when you say not panic, what people are panicking? Although the stock market's getting affected, people are canceling things. What do you? How do you? How do things like this play out, or we just don't know? Because everyone talks about this idea of the big one. I've been reading a lot of stories about it. someday there's going to be a big one. This may not be the big one, but talk about what? How do people not panic? What is the prescient thing to do? What is the responsible thing to do?
3: I think the way not to panic is to focus on the things that we know prevent the spread of the virus. Mm-hmm. Number one, we should wash our hands. Mm-hmm. Twenty seconds uh, with soap and water also we should avoid touching our face, uh, something that we do commonly, uh, (laughs) but that we know that uh, the spread of the virus by and large is through mucous membranes on our Mm -hmm. face, uh, nose, eyes, mouth. So, those are two relatively straightforward, but require some intention and planning uh, Mm -hmm. things that we can all do that have been shown to curtail the spread of viruses like uh, COVID nineteen and, and, and that specific virus right. exactly.
2: And then what about this cancellations, the quarantining? You know, because it shows it's shown up now. It's in New York, I guess. These, this is the that's nature right. of viruses spreading, and this one seems to, to seems to stealthily stay somewhere for a while.
3: Right, we. Uh, We, I think, other organizations are watching carefully recommendations from the CDC, from uh, local and county health departments with regard to how we advise our employees, with regard to how we plan events. The CDC did last night issue a recommendation that educational institutions look at abroad programs and consider bringing students back uh, from those programs. So, that's something we began to look at immediately, as well as determining where we have students. We'll watch carefully the recommendations coming from national organizations, the local organizations, and act accordingly.
2: Right. And, w- and, and so people should not be hoarding masks. This is something that I, the Surgeon General said. I've heard lots of doctors talk about it, this idea that that will protect you. That's not the case, correct?
3: That's correct. The uh, specific recommendations from the CDC and other organizations is that uh, just wearing a mask if you're not infected, if uh, if you're uh, just wearing it because you're thinking it's going to prevent you from getting infected, that's not likely to be effective. And also, it's likely to prevent the mask from getting to the places they need to get, right. which is in taking care of patients uh, who do have the infection. And, so,
2: why will it not prevent that? Because it, the microbes get in. Is that correct?
3: Right what we uh, what we know so far and and this is changing by the hour mm-hmm. uh, not to mention by the day um is that this virus like other virus specific viruses in the family of coronaviruses is spread by droplets so the virus gets into particles of Uh, saliva or, um, you know, other bodily fluids, and then it's transmitted either uh, through a cough or a sneeze or through close contact with a surface that has had droplets on it. A mask, although, you know, in some sense it might be effective, it's not the principal way we prevent the spread of the infection. Right. If you the were principal. sick
2: yourself, it would prevent the cough from going outward. That's, That's right. So That's if you're right. actually sick, it does.
3: Right. But if you're trying to prevent the infection, again, it's hand washing and avoid touching your face, right. mucous membranes. Right. right. So the
2: masks are used for healthcare care workers and people who are sick who actually right. want to prevent from coughing on a table or, or more of that, essentially. That's, right. That's what it should be used for if you're actually yes. sick. So, if that's you correct. are sick, you should wear one. If you're not, you should not. Correct. Right. Okay. So, do you all spend a lot of time thinking about this idea of the big one, the idea that there is there is a a, a virus or or a plague that's going to affect humanity? We and do. And I want to get into precision medicine because medicine's changing, too, at the same time.
3: Exactly. I think what's happened over the past month and in the past couple of weeks with regard to coronavirus really underscores the importance of needing to focus much more attention on infectious diseases, those that are emerging and those that are already here. There's been very little work done on new vaccine development uh, in recent years. There are lots of reasons for that uh, in terms of the business model, in terms of the amount of R&D costs required Mm -hmm. to develop new vaccines. But we need to rethink that. And we need to learn a lot more about human immunology and how it is that we form vaccines, how it is that we can mobilize the immune system in each of us to fight off infections Mm -hmm. like the infection from coronavirus. Our knowledge of human immunology and the human vaccine response is still fairly primitive. That's an area we focused on a lot at Stanford and will continue to focus on, in addition to the work that's going to go on in industry, I hope, uh, to develop a vaccine for COVID-19 and also better vaccines for the flu and and other related viral illnesses. All
2: right, this gives a good uh, segue into talking about your book, uh, Discovering Precision medicine. The idea that tech can help us in this way, I mean, I wrote a column about it recently about the things, obviously, uh, working from home and things. There's a lot of technologies now that prevent people from hitting each other, but you're talking about something else. Pre- explain precision medicine, but what you mean and and where uh, how it's going to help our health.
3: Well, we, w- our strategic vision in Stanford Medicine, we describe as precision health, and we mm-hmm. call it health rather than medicine for the following reasons. In the United States, we have a great sick care system. Yes, we do. Uh, In terms of organ transplantation, the latest treatments for cancer. And and for goodness sakes, if one of our family members has a disease like severe heart disease or cancer, we want to get the very best individualized treatments. And we do relatively well with that in the United States. But shouldn't we be taking those same enablers of genomics and data science Mm -hmm. and applying them much earlier on to predict and prevent disease? Mm -hmm. Precision health, therefore, is about health care. It's about learning how to keep us healthy. If we get sick, we want precision medicine, which is about sick care, which Mm -hmm. we for sure do at Stanford. But the way we know we'll be successful a decade, we've been successful a decade from now in our vision for precision health is that a lot of the severe acute diseases we treat today, like cancer and heart disease, will either be prevented in the first place or they'll be less severe because we will have detected and treated them earlier. Mm -hmm. Therefore, there are three components to precision health, predict, prevent, and cure, but really in that order, because we're if we're able to predict uh, the likelihood that you or I will get a disease, we're much better equipped to prevent it from occurring in the first place. Mm-hmm. And when we can't prevent it, if we diagnose it much earlier, we'll be able to treat it more effectively than if it was diagnosed at a very late stage. Cancer provides a good example. Mm-hmm. Knowing our risk factors is going to be increasingly important, and advanced diagnostic tests that are focused on detecting cancers like pancreas cancer, ovarian cancer, much earlier should have an effect on the outcomes because today those two cancers in particular, pancreas and ovarian cancer, are classically diagnosed very late in their course and therefore have a relatively poor outcome. If we detect them earlier, we should be able to treat them much more effectively.
2: All right, so talk about how that comes because precision medicine is defined as individualized medicine, correct? Is that, am I wrong about that?
3: You're right. And really the term precision medicine began right here in San Francisco back 2013, 2014 when Sue Desmond Hellman was chancellor at UCSF. She hosted a national conference Mm -hmm. on precision medicine. It's the first time I had heard those terms used. Then President Obama picked that up as being an overall national goal. Mm -hmm. And precision medicine is about using genomics and data science to personalize the treatment of the best example is cancer. Mm -hmm. Today, for example, our treatment outcomes in breast cancer are much better than they were a decade ago because no one with breast cancer gets off-the-shelf treatment. Everyone with breast cancer has a treatment protocol that's individualized to the disease we in Explain how that end? works,
2: because I think people don't understand. That they, 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 the medicine has been sort of a, a, a kind of, a, I don't want to say spray and pray, but off the shelf. This is everyone gets the right. same thing, and this testing is done. Everyone's not the same. Let the, That's let the, right. The, so the idea of precision medicine is that you tailor the medicine to the individual person based on their genomics and other things.
3: That's right. We can Continuing with the uh, example of breast cancer, mm-hmm. there are three... Very important receptors that are tested Mm -hmm. in every breast cancer patient. The therapy for that patient is determined based upon whether or not the person has the receptor or not. Also, the status of any nodal, uh, any involvement of lymph nodes Mm -hmm. impacts the choice of therapy. So, whereas in the past, like maybe 15 to 20 years ago, the treatment would have been, you know, mastectomy, node dissection, radiation therapy, everybody Mm -hmm. got the same thing. That's not the case today. And as a result, the outcomes are better because we are able to tailor the treatment to what we know will work best in the patient with that particular disease.
2: Right, and not not treat every person the same, essentially. That's right. So, that has been a big boom for everyone. So, in cancer, what other areas?
3: Cancer uh, being probably the most notable one, but also in heart disease today, a lot of advances in predicting and preventing heart disease and also in treating severe heart disease. And, And heart disease points out how we can make progress in actually reducing the incidence of a disease quite a bit in the course of the last 20-25 years. It was a study begun now 60 years ago, the Framingham study, in a suburb of Boston, mm-hmm. that defined the risk factors for heart disease, high cholesterol, high lipid levels, the relationship of high blood pressure. As a result, drugs like lipid-lowering drugs were developed, and we also had a renewed attention on reducing the uh, instance of smoking, mm-hmm. better control of blood pressure, all of those factors coming together have reduced the incidence of heart disease. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't we be able to do the same thing for other types of diseases right. where the risk factors may be a little bit harder to deduce than they were for heart disease, but still now, particularly with data science, with the ability to aggregate large amounts of data— we should be in a much better position for each one of us to know what our likelihood of developing a disease is and how we can best prevent that disease.
2: All right, so let's talk about that idea. So the, you take a patient. A precision health would be to to figure out, I've heard of lots of these companies now, and a lot of tech people are going to them, what they're going to die of. They're going there to find out what they're probably going to die of based on this, this idea of what your risk factor is. Talk about how that works individually, and then we can talk about it for everyone else, for for lots of people.
3: Our genome plays a big role in determining what we're at risk of. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not everything, though. You know, it's a sad fact that in America today, the best predictor of life expectancy is not our genetic code. It's the zip code in which right. we live. Right. And I think that's something we're going to have to—the social, environmental, and behavioral determinants, and I, I write about them in the book— mm-hmm. Are going to be areas that we have to focus a lot more attention on in academic medicine and the U.S. healthcare delivery system than we have in the past. That being said, our genome does give us insights into our risk factors for a variety of different diseases. So that's a starting point, but it's really only a starting point. As we look at the interaction between the genome and things in the environment, that's where we're going to get a much more Robust picture of what our risk factors are and what we can do about it.
2: All right. When we get back, we're going to talk about how you do that, how you do that, and how you spread it out to most people in this country. And we will talk a little bit about, for not Medicare for all, but healthcare for all. Um, sure. And doing that when we get back. We're here with Dr. Lloyd Minor. He's the dean of the Stanford University School of Medicine. We'll be back after this.
1: Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money.
0: Support for this show comes from Fiverr, the world's largest marketplace for freelance services. In the fast-paced world of business, every decision counts. And when it comes to hiring, there's no room for guesswork. That's why Fiverr has developed solutions for businesses to make outsourcing projects simple, quick, and compliant. You can gain access to curated talent through Fiverr Pro's catalog of top freelancers, organized by skill and experience. Streamline your projects with a user-friendly dashboard where you can track progress and collaborate with your team. And for anyone needing the highest level of white glove service, Fiverr Pro's project partners can manage multiple freelancer engagements for you.
2: We're here with Dr. Lloyd Miner. He is the dean of Stanford University's School of Medicine. We're talking about his new book called Discovering Precision Health, Predict, Prevent, and Cure to Advance Health and Well-Being. Getting back to precision health, so talk about, you were talking about certain things with precision medicine, which is when there's certain illnesses, you zero in on them after you know about it. This is before you know about it, correct? Is that the, is that the way you would put it or not?
3: That's correct. Right. It's about... Developing, it's about the science of prediction and prevention, Mm -hmm. which classically hasn't received as much attention as the science directed at curing disease after the fact. Right. But for example, this
2: is after it's been diagnosed. That's
3: after it's been diagnosed, oftentimes at a very late stage. Mm -hmm. For example, there's a revolution going on right now in diagnostic testing with the application of data science and analytic methods to uh, detecting a small signal in the midst of a lot of noise, we should have, in the not-too-distant future, an array of diagnostic tests that will give us better insight into whether or not we have an early stage of a disease. Mm -hmm. That I think can be revolutionary. We talked before about cancers we classically only diagnose late, pancreas Mm -hmm. and ovarian cancer. We should be able, in the future, through blood tests, to see and diagnose those conditions much earlier. At Stanford, we've been a leader in the revolution in molecular diagnostics. It goes back Mm -hmm. more than a decade when Steve Quake and his colleagues were the first to use microfluidics to do a chromosomal analysis of a fetus from a simple blood test in the mom. And as a result of that technology and related technologies, today the use of amniocentesis, which is an invasive Mm -hmm. procedure to take amniotic fluid out. Right. Today, the use of amniocentesis is dramatically reduced because mm-hmm. we can get a comparable amount of information from a simple blood test. Right. That's one—
2: Of a, the mother.
3: Of the mother. Right. Uh, which—
2: For those it, who have not had it, it's very invasive. It's not a little invasive.
3: The it's, amniocentesis, yes, right.
2: and scary.
3: Exactly, because mm-hmm. it has a risk to, to the fetus. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the blood test works because there's a lot of DNA from the fetus that circulates in the mom. Mm-hmm. It, but you can apply that principle to other conditions. Mm-hmm. DNA from a tumor, from mm-hmm. a cancer that circulates in the blood, and then how do you detect that DNA? It's not as much of it as there is DNA from the fetus, but still, with with advanced analytic techniques that we have today, we sh- still should be able to perfect these diagnostic tests and roll them out. So
2: I want to talk. How how come this is not the way our healthcare system? It is about sick care. It's about the cure. It's about right. finding out you have a disease and being surprised by it, because most people die of something, right? You know? Right. Talk about the way it's set up. And then later I want to get into the question of data, like what do you do with all this data, but talk about the the, the way we think of healthcare, because it is about cures after the fact, essentially.
3: I think there's several reasons for that. One is the way we finance healthcare in America, mm-hmm. which still at its base is a fee-for-service system. That is, we pay for units or increments of care. We pay for the doctor's visit, the blood test, the radiology study, Mm -hmm. increments of care that are not necessarily, our payment system is not necessarily linked to outcomes. Therefore, there has been a move which continues today and I think needs to continue even more in the future, a move towards linking payments to outcomes, a move towards bundled payments, and ultimately a move towards being responsible for the health and well-being of people who are in a health plan or in a delivery system. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons that there hasn't been as much focus on early-stage diagnostics or prevention is that those don't necessarily translate into increments of care. Mm there is a a code for every office visit, for every blood test. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not necessarily the same type of code to doing the type of nutritional counseling that perhaps could help right. diabetics to better control their diabetes or lower uh, their blood glucose level. Mm-hmm. It's in that area that I'm really excited about advances in digital health, a lot mm-hmm. of those going on right around us here in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And that is, we know that technology has disrupted... Pretty much every aspect of our lives, except for health and healthcare,
2: astonishing. Yes, finance would be the other one. Right, less, right, less right. so. Although
3: you know, we yeah. we we do online banking today. Yeah, we yeah, didn't yeah. So yeah. much ten but the way we order goods and services, everything's different. But still, you and I, by and large, you know, pick up the phone and call to make an appointment at a doctor's yes, office. We, do. we still transmit health records by fax machines. I can't believe it, mm-hmm. but we do. Uh, we're the only industry that really still uses fax machines. Mm-hmm we need to move beyond that. We need to leverage the benefits of technology and bring them to people. But we have to do that while being cognizant of the security of the data and the privacy so, of people's data. That's why it's data. not
2: happening. When I talk to doctors, that's most of the excuse for it, is that it's, it's HIPAA or whatever. Talk a little bit about that. Explain HIPAA for those. They, 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 you're protecting health records, essentially.
3: That's right. Uh, HIPAA is Making sure that a doctor, healthcare delivery system, doesn't go out and sell your data to mm-hmm. someone else and reveal your your health status to an mm-hmm. insurer or something like that without your uh, permission. It also requires doctors, data, and delivery systems to maintain the security of data so that it can't be hacked or, or stolen. The intentions of HIPAA are absolutely correct. We also have to figure out ways to combine and aggregate data, de-identifying it. But to extract information from the data, we have to be able to bring it together. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the work that's going on now through the Office of National Coordinator of Health Information Technology, moving forward with regulations that will require more open architecture, still protecting the security of data mm-hmm. and and the role of patients to decide how their data is being used, but to require that when... I want my health data shared with someone else, or when I want to access it, I can in the way I want to access it. Mm-hmm. Those types of requirements need to move forward. When they do, they will enable us to share data in an appropriate and safe way better than we can today. So
2: what, for, for the reasons they are siloed, is because of this, what is the reason, given all these other changes across society and sharing of data, what is, is just this or, or what? What is the problem? Is the payment system, if you had to point to...
3: There are lots of factors, but one is that there haven't been the incentives in place Mm -hmm. to make data interoperable and interchangeable in the way that there have been the incentives in other industries. For example, you mentioned fintech before. Mm -hmm. You you and I can use our ATM card pretty much in any ATM on the planet today, right? Imagine a financial services organization that said, well, we'll give you every customer a card, but you can only use it at our ATMs. Would, Would we stick with that organization? No. I think there's a strong role for us as consumers to really be pushing our doctors, our delivery systems, that I want to access my data when I want to access, and I want it to be portable in the ways that I want it to be portable, and I want to be the person in charge of making those decisions. I think consumers pushing for that will help ultimately to drive the regulatory changes. And also this shift more towards bundle payments so that there's, there aren't as many incentives for delivery systems to uh, prevent their... Uh, their enrollees from looking at other opportunities. And
2: when it comes to preventative health, it, you don't have, that. that's not done. And why is that from your perspective? The idea given, and then we'll get into people carrying devices and knowing what they're walking and things like that. But we, the, the idea that the system is more oriented towards the end versus the beginning.
3: I think there are a couple of reasons why prevention hasn't received the same attention as treating and curing disease. One is that prevention is fundamentally about behavior. Mm-hmm. I mentioned before, you know, 70% of the determinants of health are social, environmental, and behaviorally related. I, I moved here from the East Coast a little over seven years ago. And when I was getting to to meet people in the ecosystem, I met with a prominent biotech venture capitalist. And I said, well, is there something that if, if you hear a pitch about something, you say, thank you, I'm not interested you know, you're wasting my time. And he said, yeah, anybody who comes to me saying that they have an idea for how to change behavior, I'm not interested in it. <laughs> I became very discouraged because it is fundamentally about behavior. Now, fortunately, we've seen uh, startups that are doing that, particularly in the diabetes space. Mm-hmm. And This is where we need to go. It It isn't easy, but what we know is that technology can help in creating communities mm-hmm. and communities can help support behavior change. So one reason that prevention has not received as much focus. First of all, it's hard. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, it's viewed as being soft because it is so closely linked to behavior and social environmental factors. We need to get over that and focus a lot more of our time and attention on the science of prevention and on leveraging digital technologies to help in prevention.
2: All right. Let's talk about those digital technologies because they've been a a boom in them. Everyone's carrying and carrying different Fitbits, whether it's that or or there's all kinds of groups uh, that have, and and companies that have started to do that to be constantly monitoring people. How do you look at that trend?
3: Well, I think the opportunities are great. The risks are also significant, and we have to figure out how to leverage the opportunities, but also always protect the privacy of individuals and the security mm-hmm. of data. We uh, we collaborated with Apple using Watch to detect mm-hmm. the most common arrhythmia, atrial right, fibrillation. Right,
2: which has been a big area. There right. Was, there, was the other, there was a number of companies in that area.
3: That's right. AFib oftentimes goes undiagnosed until it causes <laughs> a big problem, like a stroke.
2: This is, for um, those who don't know, this is a, a, a heart a, arrhythmia. Heart, it right. means
3: that the heart beats irregularly. Right. And um, the coordination between the top chambers of the heart and the bottom chambers uh, is distorted. And as a result, people can form blood clots, which can go on and cause strokes and other problems. Mm-hmm. Since it is an arrhythmia, if you measure heartbeat, if you measure measure rhythm, you should be able to detect when it occurs. Mm-hmm. We we conducted a, a clinical study, a clinical trial, enrolling over 400,000 people and using WATCH as an alert. And then for people who got the alert that they might have AFib, they were given the opportunity to receive a patch EKG wear that for about six days, send it back in, and then we could coordinate and, and compare what the watch says to what the EKG was saying. Right, what, so the, see what the watch
2: was saying. And there was that's a
3: true. strong concordance. About 84% of the time when the watch said the person has AFib, the EKG said that that's the case also. So, that was encouraging. Apple's going to extend that study with other collaborators, uh, Johnson & Johnson and others, Every time you and I fly on an airplane, those jet engines are being monitored hundreds, thousands of they times are. a minute. Why can't we have the same sort of thing for our health, particularly for those who are at risk of something like a major heart rhythm abnormality? We should be able to do that. It's within our grasp today.
2: And and we don't do it because the cost. We don't the... do
3: it because I think um, cost is one thing. But cost... When the iPhone came out, it Mm -hmm. was only a small segment of the population that had access to a smartphone, right? Mm -hmm. And that's not the case today. Uh, Most people have smartphones. I think the same thing will occur with digital health monitoring devices. There hasn't been, I think, it it gets back to there's been less emphasis on prediction and prevention than there has been on cure. There's been less investment in that area. Mm -hmm. But that's changing. You know, digital health startups now, there's a robust investment ecosystem We also have seen in the past year or two uh, some exits of those early-stage companies in in meaningful ways that should keep investors interested in digital health. But I think it's going to be a combination of the investor segment of getting us as consumers more comfortable with measuring things like our heart rate and and having that going in the background and also getting us as delivery systems – really viewing ourselves as partners with our patients and mm-hmm. helping our patients decide how they want to monitor their health and how we can help them do that.
2: Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about all these digital companies, you, they, they're they pretty widespread, though. They're, I mean, they're probably a widespread amount of group of people, a, a wealthier group of people who are monitoring their health. It's obviously here. A lot of people have, uh, whether they're carrying the Fitbits, whether they have the things on the wrist, whether they're doing all kinds of diabetic stuff. How does it get out to the larger group of people?
3: Right. I think it—
2: Because then it makes sense. Then you have a lot of data.
3: Yes, exactly. I think it will get out to a larger group of people just as smartphones got out to a larger group of people. They started with a small segment of the population. As they began to deliver more and more useful information, the adoption of of smartphones grew. I think we'll see the same thing with personal health monitoring devices. Also, I think we'll see more and more delivery systems working with— patients who wish to use a device to enable them to do that mm-hmm. in a way that it, it's not interfering with their lifestyle. We know that the most useful devices, the ones that actually have the greatest stickiness, are the ones that don't require a lot of effort on our part because mm-hmm. most of us don't want to spend a lot right. of time That's and it. effort on it. Right. And that ability to operate in the background and monitor our health in the background should increase as time goes on. A couple of things I write about in the book that are encouraging, still at early stage, mm-hmm. not available for general use today, is a smart mirror, for example. Most of us in the morning, mm-hmm. uh, we're looking at a mirror. We can tell a lot about our health, about how how our facial appearance may change over time.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So, that we have people so we working on So, explain
2: what it does. It, you look in a mirror and?
3: For example, if you're becoming jaundiced, that'll show up in your eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the amount of adipose tissue fat that you have in your face is an indication of your overall health. Mm -hmm. Um, There are lots of different things that if you're making a measurement repeatedly over a long period of time, very subtle changes can become significant. and That's the notion behind a smart mirror. Mm -hmm. Smart toilet also operating in the background, that can look for early indications that in something's going on with their health. Right. right, right,
2: Measuring this.
3: That's right, measuring. All right, we're
2: going to get back talking about this when we get back, especially around the data implications and the privacy implications. We're here talking to Dr. Lloyd Miner. He's the head of the Stanford Medical School, essentially, um, and he's written a book about precision health care. We'll talk about that and more when we get back.
1: Drowning in status updates and lost in endless emails? Break free with ClickUp.com, the one app to replace them all. Imagine a world where your team collaborates effortlessly in one shared space. No more chaos, just ClickUp. Your projects, tasks, and communication unified at last. Transform how you work with customizable views, seamless integration, and real-time updates. ClickUp is your shortcut to more productive days and happier teams. Join the millions of productive teams already streamlining their workflow. Visit ClickUp.com to get started.
2: We're here with Dr. Lloyd Miner. His book is called Discovering Precision Health, Predict, Prevent, and Cure to Advance Health and Well-Being. We're just talking about smart mirrors and smart toilets. People make fun of people for doing that. I mean, you know, in Japan, there, there was always like, oh, they have these in Japan. And so they, do you imagine people will embrace those or the idea that they should be constantly monitored to see how they're doing, you know, in order to prevent something further on down the line?
3: I think some will and some won't. Mm-hmm. Adoption, I believe, will be determined ultimately by how useful it is. Mm-hmm. If it if, if if we're able, when I would say, when we're able to show that this really does have an impact on health, that you can mm-hmm. detect diseases earlier and treat them far more effectively, then I think there'll be more people you know, adopt the technology. All right, technology. so smart
2: mirrors, smart toilets, which again, they monitor your evacuation essentially of all kinds, right. to look for what? What is that that looks for? You can
3: look for early indications of cancer. Right. Uh, you can look for Uh, indications of other diseases of the metabolism, uh, monitoring of diabetes will be enhanced by that. Mm -hmm. But a lot of diseases that progress should be able to be detected much earlier. Right. As well as, for example, you know, a decade ago, not many people monitored their activity level. I Mm -hmm. mean, we we know that 20 minutes of moderate exercise a day has an enormous effect on our overall health and well-being. Now, more people are— Either closing their circles or doing something to look at their activity level, and it can serve as a nudge. Mm-hmm. Um, and back to behavior change, uh, these micro nudges or reminders or small indications during our day that if we do something, it might change our how we feel, our well-being. Those have been shown over and over again to be the most effective ways to um, to actually impact behavior. And by monitoring things like our steps, other things in the background, we'll be able to deliver more informative nudges right. when we want to receive them. If we don't, then we don't have to. Right.
2: So this all sounds great—the idea of monitoring all the time. But us being monitored on social media, us being monitored, our movements, um, geography, everything else has been become controversial. Absolutely. Um, recently, you know, just this week, Walmart is getting into healthcare, uh, working uh, on a prime competitor called Walmart Plus. It's an idea uh, that they're trying to uh, that you. Pay a certain amount to get different things, but one of them is Walmart Healthcare. Um, They're piloting a healthcare clinic with services, hubs uh, against rivals, health hubs, and things like that. Um, At the same time, Amazon is also. Uh, getting into healthcare—that's what everybody thinks. That they they will do a lot of stuff like that, and obviously they will focus on preventative, because that I would imagine that's exactly what they'll focus on. Talk about this idea of these big companies. And Apple is is in here, um, probably the most privacy friendly, not, n- n- protective of privacy friendly company. Talk about what this happens, because when these companies get in, obviously prevention will be an important part of theirs, because they are going to try to try to upend and disrupt the healthcare system as it is.
3: I'm encouraged because I think each in its own way can bring new ideas, new approaches to health and health care. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's take Walmart as an example. Mm-hmm. I think roughly 7,400 stores, Walmart stores in some of the most underserved health areas of the country. Walmart has opened, as you mentioned, health clinics at a couple of stores in the Atlanta suburbs. Um, I think they'll study those intensively. But bringing primary care and vision services and dentistry in an affordable way, in an easy-to-access way to communities, should go a long way at, mm-hmm. at identifying, pre- at predicting, and preventing diseases. And and those clinics are going to be focused on doing exactly that. I mean, how can we identify high blood pressure or high glucose levels and and treat those in people? Now, as to whether or not it's Walmart or it's Amazon or it's Apple, I mean— each, of course, comes at it from a bit of a different angle, given their core business model. But I think that's going to be good for consumers. Now, what we have to make sure in all of this is that the interests of the patients have to be first. The interest of the consumer has to be first. And that is that I hope we never get to a situation where health-related data is viewed as Simple social media data. Mm-hmm. There may be some people who want their health data ac- accessible in that mm-hmm. way, but I think most people will not. Right. So we have to make sure that it's protected and that privacy is protected.
2: Mm-hmm. And but when they when you have a, a bi- these big tech companies get into it, how does it change the current environment? Is that's what's necessary to change this? Um, because it ha- it isn't really working under the current insurance system with big giant insurance companies where nobody's concerned with prevention essentially.
3: Not as much as they need to be, mm-hmm. that's. One thing that I think, one of the many things that I think can come in a very constructive way Mm -hmm. from the focus of these large companies on health. Walmart began many years ago. They are the largest employer in the United Mm -hmm. States. And for their employees who need uh, a serious procedure like heart surgery or maybe they have low back pain, They began establishing centers of excellence, and they monitor the health outcomes of those centers of excellence very, very closely. That's a win-win situation. It's a win for the company because Mm -hmm. they're getting the best outcomes, and and usually better outcomes are associated with lower cost. It's for sure a win for the employees because when they go for—and maybe they have to travel 100, 200 miles Mm -hmm. to get heart surgery. Walmart pays for that, but they can be sure that they're getting it done by— by surgeons and in a delivery system, with those outcomes being very, very closely monitored, so they're going to get the best care that's available, you know that spirit needs to permeate more of the the healthcare delivery space, and I think we'll we'll see more of this linkage to outcomes to payments, both in government insurance plans and increasingly in commercial plans as well.
2: All right, so when these big companies get in, one of the things that's uh, problematic is getting health care to everyone. And obviously, one of the issues in this uh, election is Medicare for all, whether there should be a single payer system, all kinds of things. How do you uh, get—and it makes perfect sense that we should have precision health. It should be early. It should be preventative. Um, How do we get to that with all this political rancor around health care in general?
3: There are two principles that I believe are fundamental to— revamping the U.S. health care delivery system. Mm -hmm. One is, I believe, that every American needs health insurance. Now, how that's financed, whether that's Medicare for All or the exchanges, I mean, there are a variety of different ways to do it, but everyone needs a basic form of health insurance. That's Mm -hmm. number one. Number two is— Or a health
2: plan, really. Or a health
3: plan. That's right.
2: The way we think of it is— True,
3: true. A health plan, but something that provides them with a basic level of care, and that also takes care of them if they develop a major illness Mm -hmm. that provides— uh, for the care they would need to mm-hmm. treat that illness. Because what we see today is that people all to, people who either have no insurance or they have very poor insurance, they delay, they delay and delay and delay mm-hmm. in getting something addressed, and then they only encounter the health care delivery system after when that collapse, condition has right. progressed. Right. That's just bad all around. It's mm-hmm. bad for the patients. It's bad for the delivery you know mm-hmm. delivery mechanism because their care is going to be much more expensive and have much poorer outcomes when with that delay so that's mm-hmm. why everyone needs some form of health plan health insurance but something that provides basic care second is that we need to continue this move away from fee for service medicine and more towards bundled payments and towards ultimately all of us on the delivery system side being responsible for outcomes and By moving away from the incremental payments or to pay for each unit of care and more towards outcomes-based reimbursements, that will help us to drive value, that is, better outcomes for lower costs, and will also align the financial incentives with what we want the incentives of the delivery system to be, which is keeping us healthy and when we do get sick, providing us the best treatment that will give us the best outcome.
2: So uh, to finish up, what are the key—I want to understand from you what the key things in the next five years that are happening, some of the key, te- especially technology trends that are happening that will bring us to this, the diagnostic uh, test. And then how you would look at it 20 years from now if this, if we had, had the ability to know what was coming down the pike and do something about it before it got the worst possible you know, we're in the worst possible situation.
3: On the technology side, I think we'll continue to see the development of... of Monitoring devices. Monitoring devices. Also, we'll see much better electronic health record systems. Mm -hmm. Today, electronic health record systems don't provide much decision support. They don't furnish you and me with data in the forms we would like it to be. A lot of entrepreneurial activity going on in that regard. And and I think we'll see a lot of improvements in the way they function in the future. Mm -hmm. Also... I think technology will enable us to monitor our health in ways we've never been able to in the past. Not everyone will want to do that. But mm-hmm. those who do will be able to do so without a lot of friction, without having to and change the most, our life.
2: The most is care- having something on your body, right? Not so much the smart toilets or the smart mirrors. That's, right. that's just one way. But mostly is care. Right. That's where most of the, the innovation is going on right now.
3: That's right, as well as in early diagnostics, which are technology-enabled, but usually involve looking for a very small amount of a, a cancer cells or another uh, molecule in in the blood mm-hmm. that or urine that could be tested very easily mm-hmm. and very inexpensively when it's scaled. Mm-hmm. I think all of that's in the three- to five-year time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, then looking more broadly, once that's deployed, I see us moving away from just after-the-fact medicine and much more towards the prevention and prediction that will enable us to drive better outcomes. Mm
2: -hmm. And that would include what? How would that that look for a patient going in?
3: For example, and it's... You wear
2: a monitor device, so your, your heart is being monitored, your blood is being monitored on a regular basis.
3: Or you engage in other ways with the healthcare delivery system where you don't come in for an appointment... You have a virtual visit with a lifestyle coach or a nutritionist mm-hmm. at night, you know, when you're at home, rather than having to take off of work. We're doing that today in our delivery mm-hmm. system and many others are as well. But we lower the friction, we lower the amount of effort each of us has to take in order to engage in our health. Mm-hmm. And if we make those methods of engagement, you know, better and more accessible, then we increase the likelihood that Everyone's going to take advantage of them. Right now, and it, get, it gets back to these other determinants of health, we still, within miles of where we're sitting today, we have food deserts. We have mm-hmm. communities that don't have access to healthy food. Technology can help with that, to bring food into communities, to identify the areas where there aren't shopping opportunities that enable people for the same amount of money to get healthy foods. All of this should be much more robust as we apply technology in the way that it can.
2: Mm-hmm. And when you think about uh, the idea of advanced healthcare, you talked about predict and prevent. How does that cure? Is it the amount of data that we understand how things lead to things, or what is where, where is the curing part?
3: The curing part, I think, is best represented in what's going on in cancer today. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the roughly 30 years that I've been involved in some way or another with medicine— I've never seen anything like the past seven, eight years in the advances in immunotherapy. And I really feel that we're still at the early stages. The fact that, you know, former President Jimmy Carter is alive and doing, at least from the press reports, relatively well today with stage four melanoma that was diagnosed over three years ago is nothing short of amazing. Mm -hmm. That just would not have happened before the type of checkpoint inhibitors that we've been told he's taking that have arrested his melanoma. We're at the early stages of that, but, but I believe that there is a revolution going on in the treatment of cancers, and we're going to be able to leverage it much more effectively because we now have a foothold in how to engage the immune system in treating cancer.
2: Mm-hmm. That does beg the question, should we all be living that long?
3: It does. It does I, I've been and talking I to that's... a lot
2: of VCs a lot about this, and they're talking about health span rather than lifespan, and that you're healthy up until 102, and then you die healthy. You die, you know, in a relatively healthy manner. Talking about, I want to end on that, the implications of that. If we are able to keep ourselves healthy, and obviously in Silicon Valley, there's a lot of people who just don't want to die, um, who are looking into all kinds. There's, there's all kinds of concepts around that, and you know, you know, whether it's Google and Calico and different things like that. How do you look at that, the idea? I mean, you're talking about having healthier lives until you die. But how do you look at the concept that a lot of people are talking about, which is not dying or doing right. other things to prevent, push off dying?
3: Certainly, I hear that. And in the environment we live in, it's yeah. talked about a lot. I think that's a relatively small sector of of society mm-hmm. that is thinking in those terms. What I'm most excited about is that through what we've been talking about in this interview, mm-hmm. the technologies we've talked about, the other advances— we should be able to make health and healthcare much more egalitarian than it is today yeah. in our country. Uh, coming back to the statistic that I, I just find appalling that I think is a mandate for us to change, and that is that our, the zip code in which we live in is a, mm-hmm. more of a determinant of our life expectancy than our genetic code we should be able to change that and make health and healthcare much more egalitarian. And yes, some people are gonna want to look at how they can extend that lifespan. Other people are going to be quite happy having a healthy life until whatever happens that ends the life.
2: All right, thank you so much, I really appreciate it. This is Dr. Lloyd Minor. Thank you. He's the Dean of the Stanford University School of Medicine. His book is called Discovering Precision Health, Predict, Prevent and Cure to Advance Health and Well-Being. Uh, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Dr. Miner, where can people find you online?
3: Uh, dean at med.stanford.edu.
2: And the book will be out soon, and you can find that everywhere yes. online. I mean, if you like this episode, we really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap the link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then.